Thank you for listening to the City Baptist Church Sermon Podcast. For more information about this podcast, other resources, and our church, please visit us online. We hope that today's message will be an encouragement and a help as you grow in your walk with God. Now, I, uh, I don't know if you know this or not. I know a lot of you probably do know this, but yesterday, the knockout round of the World Cup started. Did anybody no- take note of that? You notice the intensity that increased maybe a little bit at your place of work or maybe in your own heart. And those of you that are not World Cup fans, don't even worry about it. Um, <laughs> but uh, it seems like every four years or so, there's just this odd intensity that comes over. I myself am not a football fan or a soccer fan, as we say it over here. I'm not really that kind of a fan, but around the World Cup even, I become a bit of a World Cup fan. So anyone like that out here that you don't watch soccer any other time, but when the World Cup's around, you're like all in. Anybody else? Come on. Come on. Admit it. Okay. Less. Okay. Less than I thought, actually. <laughs> Some of you were like, what World Cup? Yeah. Soccer. It's the world's game. Right. And, uh, and, and what's so crazy to me is how people who are normally very calm and kind and friendly people to you, uh, turn into sort of this like rabid, intense, uh, work skipping kind of individuals that, uh, that, that leave behind everything else, neglect their family, just because of a soccer tournament that's going on every four years. Even my typical Christian Twitter feed, and yes, I'm still on Twitter, in case anybody's wondering, you can follow me at, anyway, no, uh, just joking. Uh, but uh, even my normally Christian Twitter feed, which I follow a lot of pastors and ministries, uh, all of a sudden has uh, insults and goal uh, footage and all of these things that are coming up as everybody gets excited. And one of the things that I like about the World Cup, especially this year, I think, you know, as, years, as the years go by and there's so much more technology involved and there's cameras covering every every aspect of the games. One of the things that is so funny to me is to see the intense reactions of the people that are actually there at the game. Uh, besides the ones that are here in Vancouver, all of the intense reactions, uh, whether it is uh, when somebody is losing, like Uruguay this week uh, had a big loss and uh, you can see how intense this was. Uh, one of their star players was just weeping. It was a terrible experience and everything. He was super sad. Uh, or whether it's like these fans from Japan who were just, I mean, super excited they scored and they moved on into the knockout round and to me it's just so amazing to see all of these different reactions where typically calm passive people explode in rage or in jubilation just at the sight of their team scoring a goal even common what we would consider a common decorum in the workplace is transformed when there is a soccer game on I saw this video this week uh, that went viral uh, of a uh, of an agent uh, in uh, Argentina I, I, I'm assuming that uh, I, I think there's audio for it. There we go. But I want you to see this. <laughs> I don't know if you saw that or not, but he's supposed to be checking people in for a flight, you know? He's gone now. There you go. Security is over. We got to play that again because, uh, let's see, that was great. Watch this guy right here in the white shirt. <laughs> I don't know where he went. He just, he's off. Game, you know, he took off and everybody's screaming, yelling. And uh, I, I saw that. I thought that was pretty, pretty cool to see uh, how excited he was. Uh, and, and there's something about, I don't know what it is about the human experience, but we love watching people react to things. How, how many of you have noticed how many videos there are on YouTube, reaction videos, you know? I'm going to watch somebody watch something else and see their reaction to what they're watching. You know, my kids watch people watch other people play video games. Like, how lame is that? That's like three degrees of separation. I'm like, you could be playing a video game. No, we would rather watch another guy watch and talk about what he's seeing in another person playing a video game. Lame. And the kids are gone, so I can say that. And it's a 
Jesus, I don't understand it at all. We live in this sort of weird society where there's all of this desire to see reactions and, and see what people are, are doing. So with all of that in mind, you say, where are you going with this? Obviously, I'm trying to get to a point. With all of that in mind, sometimes I like to imagine the Christmas story and try to imagine the arrival of Jesus Christ in modern day terms. And I wonder what would be the reaction to the birth of Jesus Christ. Think about that for a moment. If you were to go on YouTube and type in responses to the birth of Jesus, what kind of videos would come up? You know, what, what kind of uh, websites would be developed all in reactions or responses to uh, the birth of Jesus Christ? Now, here's the thing. We don't have to do that, nor do we have to really imagine it very much because what's so great is that in Scripture, we have and we see the responses, the reactions to the coming of Jesus Christ. And so throughout this December season, this Christmas season, we are going to be looking at the book of Luke. And so if you take your Bibles and go with me to Luke chapter 1, we are going to look at the responses of the individuals involved in the Christmas story, in the arrival of Jesus Christ, our Savior, to this earth. And as we work through it, we're going to look at the events surrounding it and very specifically how the individuals responded to the announcement, not only of Jesus, but also the one who was to, this morning we will see the one who's to proclaim the coming Christ of John the Baptist. Now the book of Luke, just to give us a bit of context as we get into our study, is very unique because when you compare it with the other Gospels, uh, in fact, 30%, or right around 30% of the book of Luke is completely new information. So, you know, we have the, the harmony of the Gospels, the four Gospels, and they often uh, work off of each other or they tell similar stories in different ways uh, through the different authors. But Luke has about 30% of it that is completely new information. It's not found in any of the other Gospels. And even though Luke was not a eyewitness himself to Jesus Christ, he wrote the book of Acts, he was with the Apostle Paul. He wrote the book of Luke some 20 years or so after the resurrection and ascension of Jesus Christ, but he was very specific in going to find eyewitnesses to understand and to learn all about Christ, and that's where we have the book of Luke from. We see that at the very beginning of the book where he says, as many have taken in hand to set forth and order a declaration of those things which are most surely believed among us. So he says, I'm telling you things that are a for sure thing. This is what we believe. 20 years after the resurrection of Christ. He says, those of us that are followers of Jesus, this is what we believe. Notice, for even as they delivered them unto us, which from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word. So he says, the people that are telling this story are eyewitnesses. I'm just the one who's going to put it out there for you to read. And so he says, we have these eyewitnesses. It seemed good to me also, having had a perfect understanding of all things from the very first. That means from above. That's the idea of the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. So he says, I have eyewitnesses and I have uh, this, this inspiration from God that is coming through me. And so he says, I'm giving you facts here. I'm telling you the truth. And then he says here to write unto thee in order, most excellent Theophilus, we'll explain him in a moment, that thou mightest know the certainty, again, it's about a surety, the things where you've been instructed. So Luke, we know, was a physician. If you didn't know that, you know that now. He was a physician. He was a well-educated guy, and he was a very careful historian of the life of Jesus Christ and, of course, of the Apostle Paul. As I mentioned, he wrote the book of Acts as well. And his education led and is revealed in his attention to detail in his writings. So if you were to take, you know, we looked at First Peter, and you look at the writings of Peter, just 
just a, a common guy, a normal guy, a fisherman. And then you have the writings of Luke. There's actually a great distinction in uh, the difficulty of words that are used. And even in the details, you know, Peter's just like, let me tell you what happened. And I, I imagine him getting so excited in the story, you know, he skips over details to just sort of tell you, you know, the main parts of it, where Luke is very, very detailed and specific in his writings. And of course, we know he has a medical background, and some of those things are emphasized. And so I think it's fitting that he would be the one who gives us the most details about the birth of very two important babies. Now, the, and I don't know, maybe because he was a doctor, he was more intrigued with that, you know, and wanted to find out more. He, as a doctor, he'd probably be like, so tell me, uh, you know, how many hours was she in labor? No, I'm not. I'm, I don't know. We don't have that. Just so you wonder, we're not going to talk about hours of labor here in the book of Luke. But I can imagine he would be that kind of guy. He would want to know the details. And so this is who is writing the book to us. This is sort of the background of it. And notice here that he's writing to a guy by the name of Theophilus. In fact, the book of Acts is also addressed to him. You say, who is Theophilus and why should we care? We don't really know who Theophilus was. But we know he was important to Luke, and we know that he was trying to instruct him in things that are true. We believe uh, from other historical records that he possibly was a Roman official, someone who was a new believer. And what we understand here is that he needed to be grounded firmly in his faith. And so that's why he emphasizes to him here, he says, I want you to be instructed, notice that, that you might know for certainty the things you've been instructed. That is the idea of someone who's learning the basics of Christianity. So what he's trying to do, understand this. Luke, the mature believer, the mature follower of Christ, is writing to a new believer and he's saying, listen, if you're going to grow in your faith, if you're going to grow in your understanding, then you need to be assured of these things. You need to know for sure. And so he gives him a detailed, accurate account and like I said, a lot of detail goes into the birth of the Lord Jesus Christ because that is so important. It's foundational for our faith. It is foundational for our walk with God. If you remember, Philippians tells us, he says that we may know him and the power of his resurrection. We need to know Christ. We need to be assured of these truths. So as we get to the first chapter here in Luke, we are introduced. You got some background? Understand who wrote the book? Oh, all right. I feel like today's going to have to be a little, a little Q&A day, I think, because you guys all look tired or scared from your walk in on the parking lot. <laughs> I get it. I get it. Your legs are a little shaky. Okay, so we'll do a little back and forth today. So be ready for it. Just get ready. Okay. So Luke wrote it, and now we have these announcements that we're about to see, these babies that come as a complete surprise to their new parents. So let's look at the first response and the first character that we see as the angel Gabriel comes and begins to un unfold this plan of God. So you ready? Let's get into it. Verse number five. So there was in the days of Herod, the king of Judea, a certain priest named Zacharias of the course of Abia. And his wife was of the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God, walking in all the commandments and ordinances of the Lord. Say that last word with me. Blameless. Okay, so we're introduced here to two characters who very uniquely, if you understand, they are righteous, they walk in the commandments and the ordinances of the Lord, blameless. Verse 7, and they had no child, because that Elizabeth was barren, and they both were now well stricken in years. So the Christmas story doesn't just begin with Jesus in a, in a manger and, and all of the story around that. No, this Christmas story begins here with this priest, Zacharias, that we're introduced to here, and his wife, Elizabeth, who's of a priestly line herself, of Aaron, if you noticed, 
And we see this, young, this, this couple, this, they're not young, this elderly couple that lived during the reign of King Herod the Great. Now, Israel, we know, was under occupation by the Roman Empire, and Herod was placed as a ruler in the region. He was kind of like a puppet king, and so I think because of his own ineptness and inability to do very much with, within the region, uh, he was a ruthless guy. He was not a nice kind of guy. You know, think of like, uh, you know, in the story of Robin Hood, you know, King John, right? Just like sort of this sniveling guy who just wants to control people and and, uh, and that's how I imagine Herod being. He was, he was so ruthless, in fact, that he killed several of his wives just because they displeased him. And he also killed some of his kids because they displeased him. Now, I see some of you nodding. That's no, you're not supposed to nod at that, okay? Those of you with kids. He did. He killed, he killed some kids because they did not uh, do what he wanted to do or they were a threat to him. I mean, he was a terrible, terrible guy. And for the Israelites, this was a dark time. It was a difficult season, not only because they were under this Roman rule and corruption and, and all of the difficulties around it, but also even within Israel itself, they had had no prophetic word from God for now at this point 400 years since the prophet Malachi. They had not heard a direct word from the Lord. There had been no prophet that had come to the people and said, thus saith the Lord, this is what God wants for you. The priesthood, as we see here, Zacharias was a priest and the priesthood was still there. And, and of course, they had the temple and all of these things, but it was also corrupt. There were many corrupt leaders. Basically, it had become a political organization at this time, the priesthood. But here we see Zacharias, a priest, and his wife, Elizabeth, living in a difficult time, a time of persecution, a time of, of wondering, has God abandoned us? Has he left us behind? And we see both Zacharias and Elizabeth being faithful in following God. Now, here's just a, a good thought for all of us today. How much more should we, who have the Holy Spirit of God, the presence of God, the completed word of God, how much more should we live for the Lord as well, even if our society and our circumstances do not seem all that great? I mean, they were in a time of corruption, a time of genuine evil, and we do live in that time as well. And so shouldn't we also follow the Lord as well? I mean, what a great example here of two people that though they were not in the greatest of circumstances, they still followed God. But what we see here in verse number seven is that there was something else unique about these, this couple and that it is they had no children. Did you see it there in verse number seven? It says they had no child because Elizabeth was barren and they both were now well stricken in years. Now this is, this is a, a, an interesting detail that is given to us because in first century Israel, to be a, a person who, or a couple that had no children, it really was a shame to the family. It was a, sort of a, a, definitely a stigma was placed on a family that had no children because it was believed that if you did not have children, it is because God was somehow punishing you. They believed that uh, if you had no children, then uh, you were under some kind of a judgment or a punishment from God. Now, I want us to understand the, the sadness of this situation. And I think it's really important to really get a full grasp of what was happening here. I want you to understand the, the challenge that it would have been for them. Because here we have people that are described as righteous, but they're childless. You see those two there? They're righteous, but they're childless. I am sure they often wondered, well, because we're childless, are we truly righteous? <laughs> and if we're truly righteous, why are we childless? And the difficulty there that would have been, you know, the, I believe they fell into or would have definitely struggled with the human tendency that all of us have to conflate God's approval with our earthly blessings. How often do we do that? You know, something bad happens. God must be mad at me, right? Got a flat tire. 
oh, it's because of that, you know, lustful thought I had in high school, right? You know, and we conflate all of these things and we struggle with that. And it's very common, of course, but it is wrong. I want you to know that God loves you. God loves you. He loves you no matter what. And your circumstances don't change the truth of God's love. Okay. Understand that. But in that day and age, I want you to understand for Zacharias and Elizabeth, it would have been difficult. Elizabeth would have felt broken. She would have felt like she was to blame. I mean, she's described here as someone who is barren. I mean, what a, what a tough word to describe somebody. I mean, it means dry, lifeless. I imagine when she was a younger woman, you know, and newly married to Zacharias and those family members, you know, hey, when are you guys going to have kids? And then as the years pass, it doesn't, it's no longer an open question. It's a, hey, we're praying for you. We're praying for you. And then as the years continue to go by and the other family members and maybe the kids say, why don't they have any kids? It's pretty obvious now that they didn't and they won't. Because as we know here, they were well stricken in years. Later on in verse 25, Elizabeth said very clearly, she says that it's a reproach upon my life. She understood the stigma. She understood how people looked at her. She understood how people might've even blamed her for Zacharias's own loss. And so we see here this real intensity, this, this deep feeling, this deep struggle. And now they're old. That means well-stricken. That means very old. <laughs> at some point, they would have had to adjust to the, rea- to the reality that they were not going to and could not and would not have children. So what do we learn about this though? Do we, do, do we see two angry individuals? No, we don't see that. We see two people who are going through intensely personal and painful experiences, and yet they did not walk away from their faith, and they did not walk away from their responsibilities. Do you see that? Even though they are in great difficulty and challenges, they did not walk away from their faith. Man, that is such a powerful lesson. Because how often do we in our deep pain and our deep struggle and our feelings of, of ineptitude and we feel like everything's going wrong and my life should not look like this and I should not be going through these things. How much is the temptation there to be, well, then God must not be good. And so we leave behind on our, uh, on our responsibilities and we step away from serving the Lord. We step away from where we know we need to be. I want to encourage you this morning with these two people who went through in that day and age, one of the most difficult aspects of being a family and having no children and the challenge that was there, but yet they still were faithful. They still continued on. They still were found righteous and blameless before God. How powerful is that? You know, it makes all of our, our, our issues and our difficulties seem a little bit smaller when we see how they walked through this and still were known in this way. They did not walk away from their faith, but they continued on. Well, let's look now at verses 8 through 10. And it came to pass that while he executed the priest's office before God in the order of his course. Let's just stop here for a moment. So understand, if you were a priest in that day, you had an opportunity uh, to go and serve in the temple two weeks. That's really all that you got in the actual temple. Other than that, you were serving in synagogues and other places. So here we see that Zacharias now is there for one of his weeks of service. It says, before God in the temple of the order of his course. Didn't matter where you lived, you traveled and you served in the temple today. So it's a very unique time. It's a special time. Verse 9 says, according to the custom of the priest's office, his lot, that's Zacharias, his lot was to burn incense when he went into the temple of the Lord, and the whole multitude of the people were praying without at the time of incense. 
This is a really interesting uh, detail here that is given to us. But when the priest, uh, when it was their turn to serve in the temple, there was a process that happened of dividing up the work. You know, it wasn't like you walked in and be like, yo, today I want to do the incense. It wasn't like that at all. There was a process that was involved. And, and in fact, there were many who in their entire lifetime would never be able to perform this special thing that we see Zacharias being called to here. What is so cool is that God providentially, I believe, worked this special privilege to this elder priest. And so here we see that he had the honor of going before the presence of God and burning the incense before the sacrifice. So I want you to understand for Zacharias, this moment that we just read so quickly over was like the highlight of his life. This was like, this was his world cup. Okay. I mean, this was, this was everything. This was a big deal. And then in verse number 11, we see some unique things begin to happen. So he's in there, he's doing the incense in the holy place And there appeared an angel unto him, an angel of the Lord, standing on the right side of the altar of incense. So he's in there, you got the altar, he's standing there, and an angel appears to him. No one else is supposed to be in there, by the way. And then suddenly this angel appears to him, and when Zacharias saw him, he was troubled, no kidding, and fear fell upon him. I don't know if he was like, what are you doing here, angel? Or if you even recognize it was an angel. But he said, hey, you're not supposed to be in here. This is my thing. This is my time. They picked me. Maybe he thought he was another priest. I don't know. Like, hey, man, this is my time. Take a hike. But there's this guy here, and he's troubled. He's upset. I mean, imagine an angel showing up at your work next to your photocopier, right? You go in there like, oh, you know, imagine. You know, some of you freak out if somebody just walks up behind you. Imagine. I mean, he's, he's terrifying. You know, why is he here? When he realized he was an angel, is he here to judge me? Did I do something wrong? Did I pick the wrong incense flavor? Like, what happened? Why are you here? What is going on? I don't want you to notice, I don't want you to miss out on something, though. Okay, there's a little detail here I want to I pull out. So he's there, and he's doing the job that God had given him when God comes and speaks to him. This is just sort of a little side note that I think we can understand. But you know, God often speaks to people when they're already busy serving him. God often leads people and speaks to them. I would say the majority of the time it happens when God works in someone's life in a unique way, it's when they're already doing what they should be doing. And what I'm saying here is that God often directs us when we're already busy serving him. You know, Moses and David, God spoke to them when they were tending sheep. Gideon was threshing wheat. Peter was mending nets when God came and spoke to them. And I think sometimes what we get confused with is that we as Christians often sit around and we're like waiting for God to, you know, speak to us in this unusual, unique way. And we're not even doing what we know we should be doing. Does that make sense? See, we have the word of God that's given to us. This is all that we need. This is the map that you need. How do you live your life? If you're like, what do I do? You need to get into the word of God to understand what the word of God has for you. And what is so cool is that when you are doing that and you're following God and you're pursuing him, that's when God will call you and lead you to greater things. I think so often, and and this is sort of the world that we live in, right, of instant gratification, we want to be doing nothing and then God to just like do this amazing thing in our life, right? You know, Uh, we want this incredible thing to happen, but yet we're we're not even serving God in the areas that we know we should be serving him. And here's a great example of somebody who's going through a difficult season, going through challenges, but yet he's faithful to serve, and then God steps in. I guess if you could boil it down to one quick thought, and don't get offended by this, but God does not lead the lazy. He doesn't. God doesn't lead the lazy. He speaks to those that are already serving. And so I would say if you're the kind of person like me so often, I'm looking for God. I'm looking for answers. I want to know, God, what is the direction for my life? God, would you give me vision for the church? And areas? you know what I do? The best thing I can do is I can serve God where I am with what he's called me to do right now. Does that make sense? 
And so for you, if you're looking for an answer and you're looking for wisdom from God, don't just sit around and sit on your hands and wait like, what's gonna happen? No, get busy serving God, living for him, pursuing him, being faithful to him, and God just steps in and he'll teach you. It's amazing how that happens. So it's a great thought that we see here in this passage of a man who is just busy serving. He's elderly, he's, he's stricken in years, and he's, speak, or he's serving the Lord, and then God comes and speaks, speaks to him. Let's look at verse uh, 13 through 17. And the angel said unto him, Fear not, Zacharias, fear not, Zacharias, for thy prayer is heard. And thy wife Elizabeth shall bear thee a son, and thou shalt call his name John. So already we're seeing the trouble here. All right, you seeing it? <laughs> they're old, they're stricken, they have no children. And the first thing he says is, your wife's going to have a kid. And thou shalt have great joy and gladness, and many shall rejoice at his birth. For he shall be great in the sight of the Lord, and shall drink neither wine nor strong drink, and he shall be filled with the Holy Ghost, even from his mother's womb. And many of the children of Israel shall he turn to the Lord their God, and he shall go before them in the spirit and power of Elias, as Elijah, to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children, and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just, to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. Okay, this is incredible. This angel appears at the altar, and he begins to tell him his wife's going to have a kid, and the kid, they're going to name him John. I wish that happened every time your wife was pregnant, right? Like, here, this is what his name is going to be. Man, it could avoid so many arguments and veto power and all of these things. None of my kids are named what I want them to be named. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. I'm just joking. I'm kidding. But imagine, you know, it says, hey, this is what it's going to be. All right, cool. We're, we're, in, we're in agreement. He says that John's going to be a Nazarite, have the Nazarite vow. He's not to touch alcohol. There's another aspect of the controlling influences in his life. He's going to be filled with the Holy Spirit from his mother's womb. We're going to see that next week in our, in our message. And this child, notice, is going to turn many in Israel back to the Lord, which that was a needed thing at this point, wasn't it? They needed to be turned back to the Lord, and he would do it in the power and the spirit of Elijah, one of the most notable prophets ever in the history of Israel. He says he is going to make a difference in the power of Elijah. He's going to turn, notice, turn the hearts of their fathers to their children and the disobedient to wisdom, and most importantly, he's going to prepare the way for the coming of the Lord. I mean, this is huge right here, huge. It's like somebody, you know, showing up at your work and being like, I just want you to know you have this long lost relative you never heard of and they left you $33 million. Just wanted you to know that. See you later. I mean, it's life changing stuff. This is a big deal. It's a huge deal. And he's going to make a difference. And this child is not going to be the Messiah, but he's going to prepare the way for the Messiah, fulfilling a prophecy that Zacharias would have known very well from Isaiah 41 through 5. I'm not going to read them all, but verse 3, the voice of him that crieth in the wilderness, prepare ye the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. I mean, this is the, the message from the angel to Zacharias. And you got to think here, right? Zacharias, the priest, he's doing the incense. He's living for God. He's righteous. He's, 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 he's going in the path that he should. And then he gets this awesome, amazing story. Obviously, he's going to be like, yeah, let's do it. Let's go. Come on, right? That's what he's going to respond like, don't you think? Okay, we'll look at verse 18. You're like, it's a setup. I know you set me up. And Zacharias said unto the angel, How, whereby shall I know this? How am I going to know this? He says, I'm an old man. My wife is well stricken in years. I know there's another priest with the same name as me who's 30. Maybe he's what you're looking for. He's on next month. <laughs> you know? And the angel answering said unto him, this is what's so great. He doesn't say, shut up, dude. He tells him who he's coming with, the power that he's coming with. I am Gabriel that stand in the presence of God and am sent to speak unto thee and to show thee these glad tidings. 
It's so amazing to me that you would think that Zacharias is priest. He's in the temple. He's doing the, the, the incense in the temple. An angel comes to him and speaks to him. You think he would be on board. It would encourage his faith. But rather than looking to God in faith in this, what do we see Zacharias do? He looks at himself. He looks at his circumstances. He wanted to see if what God was saying was really true. He wanted assurance More than the word of an angel, he wanted a sign. He wanted something more. Here's what we need to understand. When our eyes are on our problems, in Zacharias' case, his eyes are on his age. His eyes are on the age of his wife. He did not receive God's word with faith or with trust. Listen, in life, you cannot think that your problems are great and God's power is great at the same time. Because this is what's happening here. He says, the angel shows up and says, this is what's going to happen in your life. And he goes, looks immediately at his problem, asks, it's not going to happen. It's not possible. You know, had he forgotten what God did for Abraham and Sarah? Had he forgotten what God did through the blessing of Samuel to Hannah and Elkanah? Did he think that somehow his physical limitations were too difficult for God to overcome? See, what is happening here is that whenever God speaks to us and God leads us and he's trying to reveal himself to us, when we then immediately look to ourselves and it becomes about us and our own strength and our own power, our faith literally becomes unbelief then at that point. That's what he's saying here. He says, yeah, I don't think so. I don't think that it's actually possible for it to happen. And and we look at Zacharias and we're like, come on, bro. You're a priest. Like, you should know this. We know, of course, we know the end of the story, right? So we're like, come on, it's going to be okay. Don't worry. Just hang on tight. But how often do we do this in our own lives? God speaks to us when the word is taught, when, when God, through his spirit, reveals things to us and we are led to obey, we're led to serve, we're led to give. All of these areas that God leads us to and we say, whoa, 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 back up, God. (laughs) Back up for a moment. You want me to do what? You want me to witness to who? You want me to give that? You want me to sacrifice my time? God, that's impossible. Uh, you want me to follow you in this way? You want me to serve you? You want me to go to the mission field? You want me to be a, a, a preacher? You want me to use my life for your glory? Lord, I don't know, God. I don't think you really know what you're talking about. I don't think you really understand what's happening. And our fear then overcomes our faith. And I got to tell you, the end result of that is simply unbelief then. An angel is standing at the altar of incense and says, I am from God. And he says, I'm old. (laughs) I don't think you understand my situation. Listen, in scripture, and here we see this as well too, faith is blessed, but unbelief is always judged. Here's what I want you to understand. You're putting yourself, when you allow your fear to overcome your faith in God and your belief that God can do what he says he's going to do, you're putting yourself in a place of judgment. Now, I want to clarify God is not up there in heaven, you know, like throwing rocks at people. But one of the biggest judgments that comes into the life of a person of unbelief is that you simply lose your influence and your testimony then for God. You lose your testimony and your influence. You could put it this way, you lose your voice for God. Look how the story continues. He says to him, in his moment of unbelief, thou shalt be dumb. Now that's not, you know, how we would say it today. But that means he would not be able to speak from that point on. The judgment of his unbelief was that he would not be able to speak until the day that these things shall be performed. Because, why? You didn't believe my words. You see that there? He lost his voice because he did not believe, which will be fulfilled in their season. 
Verse 21, the people waited for Zacharias and they marveled that he tarried so long in the temple. Man, he's having a good incense session up there, right? And he's taking forever. What's going on? And when he came out, he could not speak unto them and they perceived that he had seen a vision in the temple for he beckoned unto them, but remained speechless. When our fear overcomes our faith, it becomes unbelief and we lose our voice for the Lord. And I think you understand the metaphor that I'm trying to get across to us here. When you become a person of unbelief, your testimony will be limited. Your ability to speak of the goodness and the grace and the power of God will be limited. I mean, think about it for a moment. How can we witness for God if we don't believe that he's going to do what he said he's going to do? How can we tell our unsaved family and friends, listen, God loves you and he cares for you and he's all powerful and he's strong enough to rise from the dead and give you salvation. Yeah, but he can't figure out what's going on in my life. (laughs) You lose all strength. You lose all influence in that sense. And we must be aware of that, that the, the, the challenge that it brings to us. See, I don't know where you might be struggling in your area of faith right now, but I want to tell you that if your response is a response of fear, it's a response of unbelief. Now, as Christians, we never want to be accused of unbelief, right? That's the sin unto death of unbelief, the sin of separation from God. We don't be accused of that, but how often do we live out our lives in that way? We say we are Christians. We come to church. Some of you right now are really struggling in this area right now. Fear is overwhelming you right now. And even though God has given you direction, you're still like, oh, I don't know if I can, I can do that. But you come to church and you sing, I believe God, he won't fail, right? <laughs> and, and you're singing it and you're like, oh, that sounds cool. But in your heart, it's just pff, unbelief. It's unbelief. Listen, Hebrews tells us that we must hold fast the profession of our faith without wavering. Hold fast to it for he is faithful. Who's that he? That's God. If he promised it, he's faithful to fulfill it in you. We serve a powerful God and he is faithful and he can be trusted this morning. And so we must respond with faith and not just looking at our circumstances and looking at our insecurities and our own issues. Say, no, if God spoke to me, if God led me in this way, then I'm going to believe him and I'm going to trust him. How do you think the response was when he got home? I was thinking about that a little bit this week when Zacharias came home, you know, and Elizabeth, she's maybe there in the house and she's maybe preparing some, some things, you know, and Zacharias is coming home today. And, you know, she's probably got a list of things for him to do. You know, it's kind of up on the wall there. He's been gone for a week. So obviously there's a few things and he comes in and she says, Zacharias, I'm so glad you're here. Oh man, I got so many things happen while you're gone. I need you to do this. And I need you to do this. And, and he just goes, mm. all right, Zacharias, listen, you've had a good time up there with your priest friends up at the temple, having a great time all week. You left me here with all the responsibilities. I need you to step in and do a few things. I'm sure he probably wrote something down. <laughs> Hello. <laughs> you know, uh, let me tell you a few things. Let me tell you what, what was going on. And he told her about the promise of God. Let's just quickly look at 23 through 25. And it came to pass as soon as the day of his ministration was accomplished, he departed to his own house. And after those days, that's right there between those two, uh, uh, the two verses. That's where all that happened that I just told you about. And after these days, his wife, Elizabeth conceived and hid herself five months saying, this is nuts. No, thus said the Lord, thus hath the Lord dealt with me in the days whereon he looked on me to take away my reproach among men. God kept his promise. God kept his promise. 
There's nothing too hard for our God. You believe that? There's nothing. There's nothing too hard for our God. If you don't get anything else this morning, write that down somewhere. There's nothing too hard for our God. Why don't you say to the person next to you? Come on. Let's hear it. Ready? There is nothing too hard for our God. Okay, now some of you just found somebody. Say it again, ready? There is nothing too hard for our God. So I don't know the circumstance that you're in right now. I don't know the challenge that you are going through. You might really connect with Zacharias and Elizabeth in their struggles. It might be that some of you connect with Zacharias in the sense that you've been serving the Lord and God's spoken to you in, in, a, in a unique way, or maybe God is leading you to do something or to be a part of something. God has spoken to you and you're like, I don't know if you know what you're talking about, Lord, don't you know my problems, don't you know my issues? In whatever way it is, I wanna challenge you this morning, nothing is too hard for God. If God's leading you, if he's directing you, would you respond with faith and don't respond with fear? Don't respond with fear. Some of you are just, you're just sort of getting back into walking with the Lord. You've been away maybe for a while. It's, it's new for you to be even come to church very regularly. I want to encourage you, as you pursue God, as you grow in your faith, God is going to lead you. He's going to direct you. What's your response going to be? Is it going to be a response of fear or of faith? Some of you, God is doing something in your life. He, is, he has put a passion and a, there's something that's, I don't know how to describe it, but there's a burning inside of you. And it scares you to death because it might mean that you're gonna, it's gonna change the whole direction of your life, the whole outlook of your life. Don't fear it, embrace it. Embrace it and say, man, if God is leading me, try it, obviously. Seek counsel. But if God is doing a work in you, would you pursue it with all your heart? Say, God, I'm gonna trust you by faith and not by fear and see what God does and see what God can do through you. We hope that you were encouraged by the message today and we would love to hear how God has worked in your life. If you'd like to take the time to visit our website and send us a message through the contact page, we would really appreciate it. Have a blessed day.